This is Kelly Freeman with NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio, back with another Parenting During a Pandemic. This week, we focused on housing and rental assistance through the American Rescue Plan. The American Rescue Plan was passed in Congress and signed by President Biden back in March and will deliver immediate and effective relief for parents and families hit hard by the pandemic. It'll address racial and gender disparities and health and economic outcomes that have been exacerbated throughout the crisis and makes bold progress that puts us on a path to recovery. But what does that relief look like? What can parents and caregivers expect from the American Rescue Plan? NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio and the Women's Public Policy Network partnered to host a series of Facebook Live conversations to examine the different components of the American Rescue Plan and what it means for parents. This week's event was the last in our series. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to NARAL's The Morning After. Each week, our podcast brings you the latest on reproductive health care, progressive politics, and the fight to keep abortion safe and legal. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube, and on our website at ProChoiceOhio.org. The program also airs each Friday morning at 9 on WGRN 94.1 in Columbus, Ohio. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ProChoiceOH. NARAL's The Morning After is a production of NARAL ProChoice Ohio. Enjoy the show! We're really excited to be here. This is the fourth in our four-part series. This is the final of our four-part series. Um, uh, I am Elizabeth Brown, the executive director of the Ohio Women's Public Policy Network. We have partnered with NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio um, for this four-part series called Parenting in the Pandemic. And really what we're trying to do, we understand parents have a lot. I'm like fully parenting currently, um, as you see, but um, we know parents have a lot to do. And what we want to try to do for you is break down some of the resources that are available um, right now in the pandemic. Uh, we, there was a lot of news made earlier this year that help is on the way as we're you know, trying to build back better from this pandemic um, through the American Rescue Plan. But what does that actually mean for families and parents um, and how can you access it? So we've held um, two different um, uh, sessions on um, childcare, one on the child tax credit um, and one on um, the childcare uh, block grant. And then we've also held one on um, paid family leave tax credits. So um, please go look up those sessions um, and, and, and see what the panelists for those had to say um, to help kind of demystify what's going on on the federal level and understand how you can access um, these resources. Uh, it is really good when government passes things that are responsive to what families need, but they can't get their job done unless we know our part, we know how to access them. Um, and I think the good news is many of these things um, can be de demystified pretty easily. So that is why we're all here today. Um, again, just for those who are continuing to stream on, um, I'm Elizabeth Brown. I'm the executive director of the Ohio Women's Public Policy Network. Um, and we are partnered with NARAL Pro-Choice Pro Ohio for this fourth in our four-part series um, of parenting in the pandemic. Um, so I want to, without further ado, introduce our panelists um, because their voices are the ones that matter um, for the next 45 minutes. Uh, we have Elena Webb, who is the housing coordinator for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. We have Chantel Duke Robinson, who is the Rapid Rehousing Manager for YWCA Dayton. And we have Tia Lurie, who is Director of Operations for YWCA Dayton. 
Um, we are talking about housing and rental assistance. And these three women are absolutely experts in the field. They know what women need in their communities and they understand how organizational and governmental response to those needs can really make or break communities, make or break families. So I wanna welcome all three of you and thank you so much for giving your time during this, this lunch on Wednesday. And um, if it's all right with everyone, I'm gonna launch into questions. When I turn to you, feel free to add anything in about yourself that we should know before your answer. Um, but let's start with Tia. Um, so, you know, even before the COVID-19 crisis, um, Safe and affordable housing was a struggle for many Ohioans. And that struggle disproportionately impacted women, particularly black women and women of color. So Tia, can you share more about what the landscape was for your organization pre-pandemic in terms of addressing you know, housing insecurity um, in Dayton for women and families? Yeah, definitely. And first, I'd just like to say thank you so much for having us here today. Um, it, it is exciting to be able to talk about this, to be able to talk about new opportunities for housing assistance, um, and be able to share some of the information of work that we have been doing for many, many years now. Um, at YWCA Dayton, we've been providing housing assistance through a variety of programs in conjunction with our county um, for many years. And actually, um, just before the pandemic started in the fall of 2019, we launched a uh, rapid rehousing program for survivors of domestic violence that um, almost that quadrupled our rental assistance that we had been able to provide in the past. So we really um, you know, started 2020, ended 2019 and started 2020 with a huge amount of rental assistance um, that we we're using to rehouse survivors of domestic violence. So that's families, singles, men, women. Um, if someone was fleeing domestic violence, we were able to help them get rehoused. Um, and we saw that funding, the, the really the program fill up extremely quickly. Um, the, the need is great. The need has been great for many years uh, and, and really we are not able to serve people as quickly as the requests come in for service. And that was pre-pandemic. That was fall of 2019 when we started this program. Um, and the, the goal with the rapid rehousing program is to give that little boost of assistance to the, the family or the individual that um, is struggling to find safe, affordable, stable housing. So it's a security deposit. It's a couple months of rental assistance. Um, some support services, help them get connected with resource uh, benefits, public benefits, um, any other financial resources, help them get connected to employment, child care, so that they can take over their own rental payment and be self-sufficient. It's all market-based rent, working with landlords in the community. Um, it's not, it's a separate rental avenue than public housing or subsidized housing. Um, so the idea is, is that these families and individuals will take over full market rate rent once the assistance ends. And usually we want to provide about six to nine months of assistance. So six to nine months after our, our large rapid rehousing program started, the pandemic hit. And so we had people who we were planning on rolling off the program. They were losing housing 
I'm sorry, they were losing jobs. Their kids were being told to stay home from school. They were losing childcare. So in this time period where we were expecting to be able to roll people off of our rapid rehousing program, that they would be able to take over that rental payment on their own, we were finding that no, now they had very little income. They had to stay home with their kids. They had to be teaching their kids at home. Um, many were losing losing their, their jobs or not able to go to their jobs for health reasons. And uh, that really threw a wrench in our process of how many people we could serve for how long, how many people we could bring on to our program in that first year of our, our rental assistance grant. Um, not planned for, not what we expected. We, we were hoping to be able to roll those people off, get them to self-sufficiency uh, you know, by March, April, May of 2020. Um, so the pandemic really just exacerbated the issue that we've been seeing for a very long time, that it is difficult for, um, for parents, for mothers in particular, to raise their children, to get their kids to and from school, to maintain a job, to make a rent payment, um, to keep their utilities on. That is is a a lot for for many people, um, especially if they're in an entry-level job or um, they have small kids at home. So we really, I I would say the the primary thing that changed for us in, in this you know, 20 end of 2019 through now is that the need is just greater. The the needs are the same. People have a hard time finding jobs that um, pay them a living wage, that pay them enough to to pay their rent, particularly if they're a larger family. Um, People have a hard time finding employment that allows them to be flexible, to take care of their children, to, you know, meet their kids' needs, whether it's school or daycare, illness, whatever comes up, there's... uh, you know, all of those needs have been happening for years and years, for decades, and, and the pandemic has really just exacerbated it. Absolutely. I think that's key. That's a key, really key to this conversation around housing mm-hmm. because we know um, that housing has been a struggle uh, mm-hmm. pre-pandemic, and we don't want to lose sight of that fact because um, there is nothing magic about this pandemic ending when it comes to housing instability. We're going to be confronted with the same problems, but really worse. Um, right. moving forward because of the pandemic instability. So Chantal, I'd like to um, bring your voice into the conversation as manager of the rapid rehousing program. Um, And I, you know, I'd I'd really love to hear your insights around um, housing instability and how families have managed through the pandemic. And then I'm also going to ask you about how you think these billions billions of dollars of relief for families and programs um, serving those experiencing housing insecurity may benefit people. Could you kind of talk to both of those, the problems and then the potential benefit of billions of federal dollars coming in to help out? Absolutely. Um, the two programs that I manage here at the YWCA and the HCRP and our COC program that falls under the umbrella of the Rapid Housing. Um, has noticed that there has been, well, we stand on two legs. I like to say, I always tell you, we stand on two legs and one being housing, the other one being employment. With um, um, when employment um, opportunities not being available, ready available, it affects um, how quickly um, individuals can transition off of the programs. Um, if they are not able to find employment, then that's going to delay 
um, them being able to become self-sufficient by the end of those nine months that Zaytia um, mentioned. Um, so we have found it um, difficult for some, found that for some families, it is difficult to find employment um, because of, again, the lack of uh, uh, jobs available, um, them not be able to, being able to find daycare um, because the children are at home now. Um, some of them are still recovering from um, financial ruins from, you know, 2020. And so it kind of stagnates um, their progression as to, you know, to finding housing. Um, I have um, learned um, that those are the immediate and short-term needs. Um, and it's basically to secure a job in order or in daycare in order that they become, you know, work to become self-sufficient to get off of our program, um, off the, the program. Well, should I say transition off? I'm sorry, the program. Um, there is a major need for um, funding for preventative um, um, programs. Um, we need extensions um, so that now that we've, we've barely made it through 2020 and now we're approaching 2021, like Tia said, all this happened when most of our clients were nearing the end of the program. So we need funding to be able to extend them, I say another year, so that they can continue to work at recovering from the effects that the pandemic um, had on our rapidly housing. So they most definitely um, would benefit a lot uh, of our families are reporting that just, you know, not having enough income has been an issue. It's going to be an issue. Um, we serve a lot of, um, you know, African-American families that live in um, poor communities and they can only find jobs um, that are paying minimum wage, you know, it's not enough to get them out of the hole that they're, they've been forced in. We need landlords who are, you know, willing to extend um, their time so that we can get um, funding in place in order that they will be paid, you know, so the preventative funds would be um, very helpful in paying those landlords in order that you know, leases don't have to be broken and evictions, you know, we're kind of setting people up right now uh, for failure if we're not able to help them become self-sufficient by the end of the nine months that they are on our program. So, you know, preventive managers, um, I'm sorry, funding and an extension, at least another year, at least another year to help them become self-sufficient would help our programs to stand on both, both legs. Right now, we are at awe at what we see. Though we are standing, we, at, at, we are at awe and we're looking forward to getting some help in order that we can continue to move forward in the efforts to help families get um, become self-sufficient and get back to where they were before 2019 um, became an issue um, for the YWCA's families. Thank you so much. And, and I think that's, um, that's critically important to understand that in communities across the country, uh, organizations and families are facing the same things that you're talking about, the YWCA Dayton. I'm sorry, she's so loud. 
Uh, I don't know what's going on with her at the moment. Um, so I just want to really quickly before we turn to Elena and then get back into some of those details um, with our YWCA Dayton um, women, I want to um, outline what the Biden-Harris administration has done. You know, they, they announced a coordinated extension and expansion of forbearance and foreclosure relief programs, um, which is an important step towards building more equitable communities. And then to bolster those efforts, Congress passed the ARP, the American Rescue Plan. So specifically, when we talk about those billions of dollars coming in, when we talk about that money helping our communities, we're talking about emergency rental assistance. The legislation provides $21.5 billion in emergency rental assistance. We're talking about homeowner assistance. Um, the legislation provides nearly $10 billion um, to help homeowners who are behind on their mortgage and utility payments so they can avoid foreclosure. We want to keep people in their house, in their homes. Housing is a basic basic human right. We're also talking about emergency housing vouchers, homelessness assistance and supportive services programs, um, emergency assistance for rural housing, um, uh, funds for housing counseling, relief measures for section 502 and 504 direct loan borrowers, um, and then funds for fair housing activities. The legislation provides direct funding for fair housing initiatives to investigate fair housing complaints and strengthen enforcement of those. So the legislation goes very deep into what communities are facing with some of the very you know, top line things like housing assistance, um, recognizing what Tia and Chantel have said, which is that even those who didn't need really intensive interventions before the pandemic now find them certainly found themselves in a place of needing it in the last year, but now find themselves in a place of needing it more because of the instability really created by, um, by the, the last year of hardship. Um, so, so that's, a, again, a reminder of how much we're talking about coming down to local communities from the American Rescue Plan. I want to bring Elena into the conversation to shed some light on the connection between domestic violence and homelessness and the impact that the pandemic has had there. I think it's really important to understand. And if you haven't been um, witness to it or, or worked in the field or know someone affected, um, sometimes it's, it's easy not to, um, uh, draw the connection here. So um, we know domestic violence is the primary cause of homelessness for many women and families. Can Elena, I'm, I'm turning to you now. Can you share more about this connection and also what ODVN is doing to support uh, survivors and, and victims? Yeah, absolutely. So um, historically, homelessness and domestic violence have been two separate issues. Um, we've learned over time that safe, affordable, and stable housing is detrimental to um, for survivors of domestic violence who wish to separate from their abusive partner. So um, just like Liz mentioned, like when we um, think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So our most basic needs, um, like air, water, food, and shelter, the basic need of safe, secure housing is extremely important to be able to move on to other needs such as safety and um, being able to address those other needs. Um, it's important to 
um, think about how housing and financial insecurity can be just as traumatic as domestic violence and intimate partner violence. Um, so when a person is experiencing housing and financial insecurity, they are in survival mode. Um, so when you remove that need to survive by providing them um, with independent and affordable housing, they can feel more empowered to make the decisions to separate from their abusive partner. Um, so some of the ways that ODVN um, is helping, um, we have had the opportunity to provide financial and housing stability to survivors through a few different projects. Um, one of our projects is the Relocation and Emergency Services um, Program. It can provide first month's rent and security deposit uh, for survivors to relocate away from their abusive partner. It can also help with things such as changing locks, moving expenses, and back utilities. ODVN also has a transitional housing project for survivors recently released from prison. So this can provide rental and utility assistance for survivors of domestic violence that were recently um, incarcerated. And that's for, it provides assistance for 12 months. Um, so we're partnering with Turning Point Domestic Violence Program that's in Marion and Delaware counties. And we also have a fresh start project, which assists local domestic violence agencies um, with um, providing housing advocacy to help survivors find permanent housing um, using the domestic violence housing first model um, and just helping those advocates get in the community, make connection with land, make connections with landlords and help um, the survivors get into housing as quick as possible. Uh, thank you so much. I, I, I also just um, staying with you for a minute here, Elena, I know ODBN has raised the alarm about the spike in cases of domestic violence really throughout the pandemic, as well as the, um, the struggle at the same time, unfortunately, to serve survivors safely and effectively because of all the health and safety constraints we know about. So can you tell us how your work has been impacted by the pandemic? both with the increase in intimate partner violence and the um, uh, resulting you know, increase in, in housing security? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what we saw in the beginning of the pandemic was definitely a, um, a decrease in calls, um, but the, the calls that we were receiving were reporting um, an increase of strangulation and more violent incidents. Um, so the stories we were hearing were much more severe. Um, so we know that domestic violence did not stop during the pandemic, but survivors weren't reaching out to the programs as much. This could be because they were maybe home with their um, abusive partner or um, just the increased isolation of being um, in the pandemic and also a fear of coming into a communal environment during the pandemic and not knowing if you were keeping you and your family safe. Um, so programs had to make a big shift and quickly change the way they provided services to meet the need. Um, ODVN was able to establish a hotel program. So that allowed survivors 
to go to a hotel rather than directly into a shelter setting, um, which if someone was worried about like a family member that was immunocompromised or just keeping their family safe, that allowed them to still get out of their abusive partner situation. Um, programs, they had to utilize um, pandemic funding to implement remote work technologies um, and really learn how to work remotely because that is something that was super unheard of for domestic violence programs. Um, so figuring out a way to still serve survivors and domestic violence programs remained open and um, frontline staff were at the shelters the entire time. So just a shift on how to keep everyone safe while um, working in that environment. Um, ODVN was also able to receive um, ESG CV funding um, for financial assistance for domestic violence programs to hire the housing advocates. So like I said before, they were using the housing first model, um, working on finding permanent housing for survivors as quick as possible um, to avoid long shelter stays. So um, making a priority for safe, stable, permanent housing um, and meeting that most basic need. So kind of bringing together um, you know, connecting homelessness, housing resources, and domestic violence so that we can really empower survivors um, of domestic violence. Can, and can you, I'm sorry, I'm like putting Elena on, on the spot multiple times in a row here, but um, uh, can you talk about how the resources passed through ARP um, or ARP? I, I don't know. ARP sounds like a dog barking, but uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> the way that it looks. Um, uh, can you talk about that, that those resources, whether it's, you know, housing assistance, rental assistance, fair housing, all of those things, how those um, might help and, and impact the, the survivors that you serve? Sure. So I've been reading a lot about this. It seems like there's an overwhelming amount of information right now. And um, a lot of things are still in like the figuring out stage. Um, I think that our biggest, I think what I'm most looking forward to um, the emergency housing vouchers, help, figuring out a way um, how communities are going to implement that. And I think that is still very much in planning stages right now. Um, Emily and I, my supervisor and I listened to a webinar um, last week and um, information on that is going to be um, coming, it sounds like. But I think that from the American Rescue Plan, I think that those emergency housing vouchers, getting those into the hands of these women, um, housing advocates helping to make landlord um, connections, using landlord incentives to help um, get people housed as soon as possible. Um, I think that will be the biggest thing that um, domestic violence survivors see from this. Um, that That is is great to hear. And I, and I know also that the um, you know, the investment in um, housing security um, really helps overall to lead to more financial security for women and their families. And, and one of the things, you tell me if I'm wrong, but one of the things in my understanding in my work with ODVN um, that, that, that I've learned is that financial insecurity is a barrier to women seeking help oftentimes, you know, that survivors don't feel empowered um, or, you know, when they're in that abusive relationship, they don't feel empowered to go seek the help um, if they don't have any hope for their own independent financial security. Um, so these options um, really help, I think, several layers down. 
if that makes sense. Um, um, well, thank you. Thank you for um, uh, helping us kind of narrow in on um, the, the specific connection between domestic violence and housing insecurity, um, because it's, it's definitely a part of the housing landscape um, that we cannot forget about. Um, so uh, Chantel, um, I am going to um, uh, ask you to talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, looking, looking towards the future um, in, in sort of these, these imperatives we all have as communities to help build more financial security and housing security. What are you as manager of these programs at YWCA, what are you hearing from women and, and families that you serve? What do they say they need to ensure their own um, housing security, even, even beyond the pandemic? What, what are some of the things they actually say? Um, uh, what I'm hearing from our families are that more funds are needed, more time is needed, um, well beyond 2021. Um, we need um, to be able to provide housing for longer periods of time because clearly there was an issue with families not having, especially African-American families or low-income families, not having enough funds to be able to maintain um, housing and um, you know, take care of other bills. Community Action Partnership is doing an awesome job um, in providing help for utilities. We pay deposits for utilities. Um, families are saying these, these, um, this help in these areas are needed because they just cannot afford to pay them right now. So um, unless we are in a position to offer um, education, um, counseling, they're gonna need more, fi again, financial support to carry them not only just through what we've just been through and what we're going through, but to address some of the issues that were existing long before COVID, as, as Tia mentioned. So long term, oh my goodness, right now we have to just stop and deal with, just regroup and just look at what we have. Everyone has to kind of dig in their pockets and throw the money on the table and say, hey, what do we have as a community? What do we have as family? What can we afford to do and what we can't? As community leaders, we need to be able to say, okay, we can take this part. We'll take this portion. Um, what can you bring and assist them in being able to do that? There's so much that is needed in order that um, our families recover from this devastating effect um, that we've experienced on our economy and you know, financially. Um, there's so much needed in so many different areas, but Right now, from a rapid rehab, we also um, provide housing for domestic violence, rental assistance, um, and finding housing for those that are experiencing um, domestic violence. We would like to be able to do that quickly. We need more affordable housing um, in our communities. Um, I hear that the, the state has a plan on building more affordable housing, and that is going to be key. That's going to be vital for our rapid rehousing programs. So we need to be able to get those families that are experiencing domestic violence issues immediately in another place and get them um, prepared towards working towards self-sufficiency. A lot of them are coming without having income because their abusers have controlled that portion. 
And so there's so much that has to be done um, that at this point, it's kind of hard to look to project what what's going to happen or what we're going to need in the future. Um, but I can tell you right now, extensions are most definitely needed. We, again, I can't um, reiterate this the most. What Tia said, um, a lot of our clients were nearing the end of our program. And unfortunately, you know, in order that others are served, um, we had to just transition them off of the program. Whereas, you know, well, we, we you know, we tuck, tuck them on case by case, every case, case by case. But at some point, we can't continue beyond a year. The most we can we can we can assist with is a year. So a lot of them were, um, you know, extended. But then that was not enough. We need more funding. We need more. We need funding to prevent um, landlords um, from evicting clients until we can figure it out. We can gather all our change and see what we can do to kind of move families along. And, and that way we can, you know, when we have to transition and when we have to let go, we can feel confident in knowing that we have done the best that we can do to carry them as far as we could as an agency. And that's important for us at the YWCA because part of our mission is to um, promote um, 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 so, and support women who are aiming to be successful at whatever it is that they choose to be. And so um, it is our mission, it is our, our, you know, our drive to make sure that we are transitioning um, women, um, all women uh, from our program. And um, by the time we release our hands from them, they are in a safe place, they are, in, they are secure in their finances and able to stand strong um, representing what is good in our community. So um, long-term, I'm hoping we can do it now. I, this is a, it's a now need. It's, it's right now. And I think that if we can all come together and figure it out and again, you know, pull our pockets, whatever we got and, 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 and just help one another throughout the continuum of care, um, that it won't be so bad down the line, down the line. There's a lot of money out there. There's a lot of resources are developing right now. We just have to connect those resources, find the money and get things done so that we can all continue to do our part to help people become self-sufficient and be housed um, away from their abusers or um, you know, to prevent long term. Our ACRP is a program designed to help people um, who are women and men who are going through our shelter systems to prevent them from be spending long time terms in, in shelter. So the sooner we can get affordable housing and, and get them connected to resources, we can combat these um, disparities that we have been facing for the last two years, at least. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you, um, uh, you, you touched on, on some uh, things that I think of as kind of root causes. Um, and you also, I want to up, uplift what you kind of ended with, which is this idea that in order to think about the long-term, we have to do the immediate correctly, right? Because if we don't live up to the immediate need, we're um, really 
kind of sunk in the long term, right? It makes it that much harder yeah. um, to help families out of these these situations and sort of that snowball effect of financial insecurity. But then you also talked about the need for more affordable housing and about um, incomes of families, and and those those are we're starting to talk now about root cause issues for housing insecurity. So you know you all on this call are like the doctors that treat the the symptoms, but what's the underlying health condition? Um, and you you have an understanding of those. And uh, Tia, I'd like to um, ask you to kind of look when you think about all the YWCA Dayton's programs and what are some of the root causes um, that mean families, you know, that, that make families basically turn to you. Um, what are those? Could you just walk us through some of the root causes for our, um, you know, bucket list of big items that we need to make big policy change on? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think we can go really, really deep into root causes and, and I'll you know touch on that, but then go to things that are a little more um, right in front of our face. Uh, generational poverty is a root cause, the um, remnants and continuing um, impacts of redlining in our neighborhoods is a root cause. Um, lack of investment into many of our neighborhoods is a root cause. Uh, and, and those are all areas that need a lot of focus and a lot of work to be done. I think what we can get um, you know, a, a, level, uh, a level beyond that or up from that and, and think about um, that our minimum wage is not enough. That's a root cause. People can work 40, 50, 60 hours a week and not make enough money to pay rent. Um, I think the, uh, the, amount of work that is needed to put into just receiving assistance, asking for assistance, getting assistance is a full-time job. People who need to get assistance and work, it's just impossible. You can't do it all at the same time, getting all of your identifiers in place, making sure your paperwork is turned into on time, standing in lines for hours on end, waiting on hold for hours on end. That can be a full-time job for many, many people. And I, I you know, I, I have a, a full-time job. I, I manage my household, but I still can't manage to get things done um, in a timely manner. Sometimes I pay a bill a little bit late. And for someone who's also on top of just regular life stressors, experiencing domestic violence, impending homelessness, living in a shelter, um, you know, trying to get to work or get their kids to school with the car that keeps breaking down, the expectation that we have on them to also be able to get this paperwork in on time, to make this appointment, to call this place, call this place, call this place, you know, have go to a landlord and have a conversation with them about what you need and, and, but, but don't be too needy because they might not want to rent to you at that point. It's just a lot that we put on people who are already experiencing a lot and already carrying a very heavy load. So I think we really need to look at how we serve people who are moving through these systems, what we expect of them, um, how we can support them in, in keeping you know, all of the paperwork, all of the documentation that they need organized and accessible. Um, even through this pandemic, trying to get people's uh, identifiers, getting to the social security office to get a replacement social security card or a birth certificate, um, all things that need to be in a housing file in order to receive that rental assistance, you know, the, the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts that you know, we don't often talk about, those things are 
can be very, very challenging. Someone with a newborn baby trying to go all over town during a pandemic to get paperwork that that the the you know, utility um, assistance provider, or the rental assistance provider needs. So I think just even examining our systems and how we ask people to move through those systems is a root cause. And, and we need to make it easier for people who need assistance to move through the systems that we make them move through. Um, you know, tied to that is uh, inaccessible or um, high costs of childcare, inaccessible childcare. We have, you know, people we serve work all hours of all days, third shift, second shift, and there aren't a lot of resources for 24-hour childcare. Um, I talked about better pay, more flexible jobs that allow a parent to you know, leave when they need to, to pick up a sick kid or um, take a day off if they need to go to parent-teacher conferences. There's, there's not a lot of jobs that will provide that flexibility and, and definitely not provide that flexibility with an income um, that is sustainable. Uh, I think also Chantel mentioned this, um, thinking about our landlords, who provides the housing that we move clients into, who are the homeowners in, in our community, who are the property owners, um, what, what do they need from the community to maintain safe and stable housing, um, what do they need from the community to ensure that they're not raising rent to a point that is inaccessible to renters. Um, what do they need to make sure that they can be flexible and know that you know their property is going to be taken care of, their rent's going to be paid, but it may not be in the really traditional way that they want it to happen. Uh, so I think we also need to have you know look into that that side of the the landowner, the property owner. What what sorts of supports are we providing to them so that they can feel uh, confident and comfortable working with these these programs, the YW, ODBN, programs all over the state that are providing rental assistance. So I think the root causes, you know, go from shallow to deep, and there's a lot of them. Um, so I, I think we're starting to look at some of them. We talk a lot about, you know, uh, living wages. We talk a lot about child care. Um, but I think we also need to start looking into the, the neighborhoods, the neighborhood development, where we're expecting people to live and raise kids and, and, you know, what sort of investments have we made into those communities over the past couple decades and what sort of de-investment have we done in those communities over the past couple decades? And are they places where, where families, where moms want to raise their kids, where parents want to raise their kids? Um, those are all such important points. And, and I really encourage all of us to keep our eye on this space, right? Keep our eye on these root causes um, because we, we have to continue to treat the system, excuse me, the symptoms so that the system doesn't get sicker. But um, we, if we don't address the root causes, we're never really going to pull um, families permanently into the middle class and um, end that cycle of generational poverty, which is what you started with there, Tia. Um, and so the, um, you know, it's kind of there in the title. When I think about the American Rescue Plan, it is, it is providing, you know, the rescue that's needed right now. Um, and uh, there is a lot more to do in order to turn some of these investments from response into actual, you know, long-term recovery. And I heard all of you say that, and I think that's a pretty important point that um, 
that that we can end on really is this idea um, to continue the drumbeat for addressing root causes. Um, before we do wrap up, I want to hold space really quickly for any of you to chime in with more that has come to mind um, as, as Tia discussed root causes and how that relates to your work. Um, so if, 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 um, if any of you, all three of you have anything else you want to add before we kind of um, tie up the, the, the loose ends of the conversation, I just want to open it up for that. And it's okay if not. I just wanted to say, just to chime on from what Tia said, um, just, you know, um, reducing processes to getting these funds is going to be key and um, making it, um, the process as quickly, you know, as possible and e as easy as possible for those that are really struggling mm -hmm. um, would be, would help us move along a lot more smoother and a lot quicker. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, that is so critical. Um, and we expect so much of, of, of folks who, who are, are, are poor, you know, who are really trying to make ends meet and we expect them to jump through so many hoops. Um, uh, so uh, thank you for lifting that point up. Um, well, I, I will, I will- I'll say one other thing. Sorry to interrupt you, Liz, but I who just kind of a message for whoever is listening into this, whether it's you know, you're working with families who are looking for assistance or whether you are someone who may be looking for assistance, even though you know we are talking about like we need to make these processes easier, we need to make the 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 systems more user-friendly. Um, they currently aren't all that user-friendly. And, and we do try to provide a lot of support and hand-holding to, to get people through the systems. But I would just really encourage anybody who is seeking assistance or working with someone to seek assistance to be patient, um, you know, to plan ahead as much as you can. I know it's not always possible, but as much as, as can be done to plan, to plan ahead and um, to know that there is assistance available. It just doesn't often happen as quickly as we'd like it to happen. Mm -hmm. um, that's a great point. And, um, you know, particularly if you are in a situation where you don't feel safe at home or you know someone who doesn't feel safe at home, um, uh, Elena outlined uh, some of the really great ways that the ODVN is helping women across the state through various agencies. Um, and all of that, um, you know, please reach out for help. All of that is available on your, your website, right? Elena can help kind of guide people depending on their local community. Um, so please, please reach out. Um, we wouldn't want our, our, our pointing out of the fact that the system is hard to discourage anyone from trying to access it as imperfect as it may be. Um, so I will, I will end with a big thank you to these three women who spent um, their, their lunchtime today uh, helping demystify the American Rescue Plan and specifically its investments in housing um, so that we can, um, I know it's a cliched term at this point, but so that we can really build back better from this pandemic and help families really achieve the kind of economic security um, that provides stability for the long term. Um, I, I, I want to plug from our first from our first session. We talked about the child tax credit, 
And um, many of the women you work with, all three of you have children. Um, so I, I would like to just highlight the child tax credit um, has been expanded. It is refundable. Um, it is an incredible investment in our youngest generation, has the possibility to really transform the social safety net for our country in a way that will begin to give some stability to families with children. If you have children who are dependent, dependent children, you qualify for the child tax credit. All you have to do is file your tax return, um, which the deadline was May 17th, was Monday. If you don't need to file a tax return, you can go onto the IRS website and, and file just the form to put yourself into the system. And if you do that, um, the federal government will start um, sending out the monthly payments beginning in July um, that amount to 3,000 per child per year. Um, it is 3,600 per child under six. Um, this is an investment in um, families, um, middle income and below. Um, and, and really, I mean, 92% of American families are going to be able to access this benefit in some form. Um, middle income and below will get to access it at full benefit. So please make sure you are, um, uh, you know, registered that you filed your tax return or you go onto irs.gov um, because uh, this, this benefit will help provide security. Um, so that is my last plug. This, thank you so much for those of you who've joined us for all four of our, our, our lunch series. This is the fourth and our final, um, you know, as we continue to see big um, important legislation come out of Washington, we're committed to, to help Ohioans um, understand it and demystify it for their families. So you may see us again in your Facebook feed. But for now, thank you so much, um, Chantel and, and Tia and Elena, and have a great rest of your, I think, sunny Wednesday. <laughs> All thank right. you so much for having us. See you guys. Mm -hmm. Bye.